Well, again, thanks for joining us. If you're joining us online, thank you also again. So I need to know how many of you were involved in Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts. I need to see hands here. Okay? So I was a Cub Scout and I was a Weeblo and I was pretty good. But I got to Boy Scouts, I was horrible. Here's what I didn't like. When we went on a, a camp out in the, the Weeblos, we slept in a hut. In the Boy Scouts, you got to sleep in a tent. I'm not liking that. And the first summer, you go to summer camp, and they tell me, oh, it'll be a blast. I was miserable. I knew I was done. That first fall, we went on a canoe trip, Friday night, Saturday, and I'm bummed because I want to be listening to a football game, and i got to be on this canoe trip. So Saturday morning, my dad says, Andrew, I'm going to go get the canoe. I'm going to bring it down. You put everything in plastic bags. I want you to take the bags down here to the water's edge. So I do, but I drag them on the ground. Of course, that tears the plastic, and everything gets wet in the canoe. And all day, my dad let me know that I wasn't paying attention. I thought, you're right. I wasn't. I, I hate this. So what he decided is you need to make second class. So you start as a scout. You go to tenderfoot, second class, first class. What about Keith? Help me out here. Star, that's what I'm missing. Star, life, and then eagle. People, I made second class in record time, and people thought, oh, he's on his way. I was out on my way out. <laughs> However, my older brother wasn't he made Eagle Scout. He was a senior patrol leader, and so I got to see the diligence, the faithfulness someone needed to exhibit to attain the rank of Eagle Scout. In fact, my dad told me at the time, he had read that Harvard, when they look at applications, values an Eagle Scout more than they do class president. Because I think class president's a popularity contest. You get an Eagle Scout, it shows you're faithful, you can see something through. The reward for that, in the Boy Scouts at least, was Eagle Scout. Well, as followers of Jesus, we are also called to be faithful. And that comes at a cost, as we've seen in our study of the book of Revelation, but I want you to know there's a reward at the end of that, significantly more than an Eagle Scout. And I want to talk about that reward this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you would open it to Revelation chapter 21, we're going to start in chapter 21, verse 1, and go through chapter 22, verse 5, wrestle with this question, what's our reward for remaining faithful to Jesus? What is our reward for remaining faithful to Jesus? Now, if you haven't been with us, let me give you a quick overview. Book of Revelation, we started in Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, kind of get an, over, an outlay of the book. Uh, verse 2, God says, I'm going to give you um, a vision, John. I'm going to communicate through symbols. Think about a political commentator who uses a political cartoons. The symbols are communicating a message. Chapter 1, verse 4, he said, this is a prophecy. So this, is, this vision is not for us to speculate and try and crack the code, if you will. This is a prophetic word for seven churches who were under pressure. Pressure to what? To quit worshiping Jesus and worship the Roman emperor. The Romans believed that the blessings were mediated through their emperor and that they needed to worship the emperor as God. Christians were saying, no, I'm not going to do that, and that came at a cost. At the end, in two weeks, when I finish, we'll see four times in chapter 22, John will use the word prophecy, this prophecy for the book of Revelation. Prophecy is instruction on how to live. In verse 5, we found out that this is a letter. John is shepherding these people, seven churches. He himself has already 
been exiled for his faith. He is going to live out life on his own on the island of Patmos, but he's going to write a letter to these seven churches. The closest one is about 50 miles away, is Ephesus. And so chapters 1 through 3 is God's analysis of how each church is doing, what's going well and what needs to change. Chapters 4 and 5 then take us into heaven. And John's in the heavens, and everything is in order in heaven, but on earth, not so much. Okay, and so um, God reveals a scroll that has God's plan to bring heaven to earth. God will judge the unrighteous and vindicate the righteous. But the scroll has seven seals on it, and you need to have authority to open it. No one's found with authority, and so John begins to weep until he hears about the Lion of Judah and the root of Jesse. Militaristic terms for sure, which talk about conquering, but he looks and he sees a slain lamb. And the message is, God will conquer, or we will conquer just like Jesus did by dying for our enemies. And that unveils a set of three judgments, seven each. The first one is the seal judgments, and they take us closer and closer to the end, but then the seventh of those introduces the, the trumpets. So chapters six through eight give us the seal judgments, Chapters 8 through 11 give us the trumpet judgments, and the last one introduces the third set of judgments, which is the bowl judgments. But before that, we get an interlude explaining what is going on. There's a spiritual battle that is going on in the places unseen. In chapter 12, we get introduced to the dragon who is Satan. In chapter 13, we get two beasts. One is the Antichrist and one is the lieutenant that are using deception and intimidation to get people to worship the emperor as God. Then chapters 15 and 16 then do give us the seven bold judgments and those take us to the end. Chapter 17 and 18, God is dismantling anything that stands in his way. Babylon, quote unquote. Any city state, any human institution, God has taken apart. Chapter 19 and 20 is the final battle of evil against God. God wins convincingly. And chapter 21 and 22 is the marriage of heaven and earth. And that's where we are. We'll start up in chapter 21, verse 1. Um, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. Now, scholars are kind of split. Is it a new heaven and earth, or it is a renewed heaven and earth? Most think it's a renewed heaven and earth, but whatever. It's as if the creation is functioning as it was designed. I don't know if you've ever watched a a show like Extreme Makeover, and I, I know there's newer shows now, Good Bones or Flip and Flop, but what happens is somebody comes in and they said, we're going to take an old house and we're going to restore it. To the person who's got that restored house, it's as if it is new. Is it new? No, it's been restored, but we're semantics. That's what we've got God doing. And again, God is going to use symbols to communicate the beauty of this restored earth, but ultimately it's going to be about relationship. At the end, it says there's no longer any sea. And remember, in the Old Testament, New Testament, sea is a symbol for chaos, for evil. That doesn't mean there won't be water. We'll see a living stream coming out of here in chapter 22. But again, there's these symbols that say evil is going to be done away with. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And we've talked about this picture of the bride and the groom. Remember in Jewish culture, the couple's betrothed, but they live separately. On the wedding day, the groom goes 
to the bride's house and takes her back. And, and there begins their life together. It's the ultimate act of intimacy. That's the picture here when God comes back. He's connecting with his church, bride with the groom, ultimate act of intimacy. For now, we're separated, but it won't always be that way. And what's so good about that? Here's what's so good about that, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the tabernacle of God, the dwelling of God. It used to be in the temple, but not anymore. It is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Remember, we talked about in the Old Testament, God made himself available in the temple. In the New Testament, we talked about we experienced God's kingdom in part, but not in full, but no longer. Heaven is going to be, we're going to be where God is. We're going to be where he dwells. And what difference will that make? Verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Remember, none of this stuff was God's plan in creation. That we would suffer pain, mourning, tears, or death. One of my jobs or one of my duties as a a pastor is to officiate funerals. And every funeral I start, I say, you know, there's never a good time for somebody to die. Yeah, maybe it's grandma. She's lived 102. She's lived a great life. Still, we're going to miss grandma. Arguably, some funerals are sadder than others. I'll go with that. But there's never anyone where, oh, this is a part. This is great. No. That's going to be done away with, friends. Tears, mourning. Any, anybody ever been there? That's going to be done away with. Look, there's places you can go on earth you go to Colorado, it's beautiful. You say, it's beautiful. There are places that are super friendly. I went to Texas A&M, and as a student, we were told, you always speak to another Aggie, and the, the greeting of choice was howdy. So you always said howdy as you're passing. Oh, it's a friendly place. So there are places that are friendly, and there are places that are beautiful, but there's no place on earth where you can say death and mourning and tears and pain are done away with. There's nothing like it on earth until... God restores earth. How's that going to happen? Here's how it's going to happen. Verse 5. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Do you know how creation started? God spoke. Said that the world was formless and void. God spoke. You know how this is going to be renewed? God's going to speak. Renew it. It's, It's done. And he said, Write these words. For these, right, for these words are faithful, true. Bet on it. If you're going to bet on anything, bet on this. So last week we talked about, we talked about the millennium and we talked about, you know, we're not going to include that in our statement of faith. If you missed it, that's fine. Because we think it's 10 verses that's not critical. We are going to include this in our statement of faith. Our bet is that Jesus is coming back. That's the hope we got. Jesus is coming back to restore his kingdom, and he's going to restore it like it was. Why? They're writing these things. Remember, our original audience, seven churches who were under pressure, either by deception or intimidation, to renounce their claim of Jesus. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things. You look at the word to those seven churches, chapters 1 through 3. Every church, he calls them to overcome. 
there's a consistency here. Um, I skipped verse 6. I'm going to go back to it. Then I'm going to do verse 7. I just want to see if you're paying attention. Xavier, were you paying attention? Did you notice that? Did I miss that? Yeah? Did Evelyn have to tell you that, or did you know that by yourself? Okay. All right, verse 6. Then he said to me, it is, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Now, he uses these terms in chapter 1 when he introduces the book because the people are thinking Rome is the Alpha and the Omega. They're not. He then goes on in chapter 1 to say, I'm the beginning and the end. Remember, Alpha and the Omega are the first and the last alphabets. I'm the beginning and the end. I will give to, to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. So God is going to supply life. Now, having heard that, you're more informed, verse 7, he overcomes. It's a word to all seven churches. You need to overcome what? The intimidation and the deception to announce Jesus. He uses the word. There's a connection of words here. You'll see him in chapter 1 through 3. You see it again here. And I will be his God and he will be my people. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is a judgment coming for those who would deny Jesus. We started by asking a question. What's our reward for remaining faithful for the Boy Scout as Eagle Scout? What's our reward for seeing the course through? Here it is. We'll experience Jesus making all things new. That's our reward. We will experience, we will be a part of it as Jesus restores things and makes all things new. And this is a process that will go out for eternity. So when we finish, when I finish, we'll sing a song called Build My Life. And Build My Life. And it's worthy of every praise that we'd bring. Worthy of every song that we would sing. And it's just declaring the worth of God. Why would we do that? Well, right here. Because he's going to restore what we've destroyed. And the punchline or the chorus of this song is build my life. That's the title. I will build my life. What we're saying is I'm going to build my life on this. This being what? Jesus is coming back. I, can't, I cannot promise you anything between now and Jesus' return. I cannot promise you you won't lose your job. I cannot promise you you won't get cancer. I cannot promise you your kid will be perfect. I cannot promise anything except Jesus is coming back and he was going to restore our world. Well, 21, 9 through 22, 5, it's honestly a repeat of what we just heard. So let me start in, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So this is the same angel in chapter 17, verse 1, who introduces John to look at the judgment of the harlot who was Rome. And I think what's worth noting here is the contrast. Rome is portrayed as a harlot. A harlot's beautiful on the outside, but dirty on the inside. A bride is pure. This is God's bride. And again, symbol of marriage, symbol of intimacy with God. Verses 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great mountain, a high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. If you catch nothing else, catch this from God. This is a work of God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was a very costly stone as a stone, crystal clear jasper. Again, this is going to be the radiance is reflecting the glory of God. Verses 12 through 14, it had a high, great and high wall with 12 gates, and the 12 gates, 12 angels. 
and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three gates in the north, three gates in the south, three gates in the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Catch a couple of things there. We talk about the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of God. This is God's people. Old Testament and New Testament who are going to be there. Okay, so we're going to see Abraham, we're going to see Paul. We're going to see Moses, we're going to see Timothy. We're going to see David, we're going to see Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Anybody who's trusted in Jesus, who's trusted in the grace of God, which was demonstrated ultimately in Jesus in the New Testament, will be there. The wall, symbol of security. Again, God's communicating through symbols. This will be a secure place. Verses 15 to 17, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall, and the city is laid out as a square, and its length is great as with width, and he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles, its length and width height are equal, and he measured the wall 72 yards according to the human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Again, I would not get caught up in the numbers, but that its size is big and it's symmetrical. Moreover, though, we need to remember that measurement is a picture of protection. And if you were with us from chapter 11, God had John measure the inner court, symbolic of the protection of the witness of Jesus, but not the outer court, symbolic that it would be trampled. And that was to say, that was a, a picture again, communicating there would be protection over the faithfulness to Jesus, the witness to his name, but not the lives of people. Please notice here, everything is measured. It's a picture of complete security as opposed to chapter 11. Verse 18, again, just the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. I, I think that's just trying to communicate the glory of God will be, will be transmitted without imperfection. The foundation of stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardinx, the sixth sardius, the seventh crystallite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth pyropress. This is why I went to seminary to learn to pronounce these names. The eleventh jacket and the twelfth amethyst. How'd I do? Thank you. What I, I think he wants to point out here is this is magnificent beyond words. It's magnificent beyond description. Rather than get into what does every stone mean, it's, it's beyond what we can imagine. Verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl in the city. The streets of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I think the connection there is the temple was overlaid in gold, so the streets in the New Testament. There's the connection. Verse 22, I saw no temple in it for the Lord, the God... God the Almighty and the Lamb are his temple. Again, the temple was where the Jews went to meet God. Don't need the temple anymore because God's going to be present. Verse 23, And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God had illumined it and the lamp is in the, in the Lamb. No need for those sources of light because God will provide that. The nations will walk by the light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring glory and honor of the nations into it again. And, and this is just a picture of every tribe, every tongue is going to be in heaven. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. No sin. 
No rebellion against God playing out in abominations and lying. It, it's pure because we're going to be in God's presence. A few more specifics. Chapter 22, 1 through 5. And he showed me a river of the water of life. There's our body of water. Clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And again, this is the Old Testament. Ezekiel talked about, prophet Ezekiel talked about a sacred river. I think this has its origins there. Notice where it is in the middle of its street. Everybody can get to it. Everybody can get to the life that God's offering. It's coming from his throne, a place of power. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. Notice the abundance, the creativity in God's provision for his people. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Notice that people who are there are people who are given to serving God. Saying, I don't want to serve God, I want to serve myself. You might want to check, I mean, am I fit? Has my heart been changed that I would have my name written in the book of life? They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. If you've been with us, you've known that the beast marked or demanded a mark either on the wrist or the forehead, symbolic of were given to him. No, these people are given to God, marked by God. One more time, there will no longer be any night, and they will not have neither the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Here's the deal. Jesus says, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. That life starts now. I really believe that. But throughout eternity, it will get infinitely better. Well, how can it be? Because it's God. We have no idea what it's like to live in a restored creation. Think about the people whose house was a wreck, an extreme makeover comes in, and they have no idea. That's just a picture of what we're looking at. Don't get caught up in the simple streets of gold. Again, these are pictures. What we're trying to communicate is the glory of God. At the center of this is Jesus' face-to-face, perfect intimacy with our Creator. I've often said the closest on a larger scale I think I'll ever get to heaven on earth was the summer of 1983. I was a student at graduate school at A&M, and they had these summer missions projects, and they recruited me to go, go, go. So I finally did. It's an 11-week deal down in Panama City, Florida, and we lived in a a hotel that was a U-shape, and in the center of that was a pool. And there were about 60 college students, about 20 staff. And so we had jobs during the day, and we'd come back for training at night, and then could hang out. And for the first four weeks, it was, it was pretty fun. About week five, the staff leave. And then week six or seven, I thought, I'm really into this. I had a job that started at 6.30 to 2. I'd come home and I'd take a nap because I'd stayed up so late the night before, have dinner, we'd have some training. And then I would stay up till 11.30, 12. As the summer went on, 12.31, if you know me, that's, we're really pushing the edge here. One thirty two, got to be up for a 6.30 job. Why? Because I am having so much fun hanging out by the pool. With who? With whoever. With whoever's there. Man, this is, I just, when I cross that threshold at 2.30, it's kind of like, I'm going to take my nap, and I'm going to get ready for what we called maximum fellowship. But you know what happened about week eight for me? I realized this is going to end. No way. Yeah, way. In three weeks, it's going to end. 
that summer, some of you may not know this song, but a song by Michael W. Smith called Friends Are Friends Forever comes out and it's popular and some people learn that. So two weeks before we're going to leave, they play that. I mean, they wrecked everybody. Everybody's weeping. Because what? We're going to leave this. And I did. And I, I cried the whole way back. I had some friends drive down from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. We drove back to Cowan Station. I, I spent the ha- first half semester grieving. Okay, here's the deal about what we're talking about here in chapter 21 and 22. There ain't no end. It doesn't end. We don't have to think, when does this end? It doesn't. It gets eternally better. What gets better? Our intimacy and understanding and knowledge of God and then one another. It's eternity. There's no end. That's the reward for being faithful to God. You know, once in a while I'll be cruising Facebook and somebody will have won a, um, a trip because they made a sales goal, they made some kind of company goal, and they got five days at this great place. But you know what happens after five days? They go home, and they spend the next 51 weeks trying to earn that trip again. This isn't a five-day deal, and then you get 51 weeks to try and earn the trip again. This is something by grace through faith that God gives us. That's the reward for not bowing before the deception, not giving in to the intimidation, but remaining faithful to God. We get the experience of Jesus making everything new. So when we moved to Lincoln, we settled in a neighborhood, 93rd and Old Cheney. And I had a neighbor who could, man, he could fix anything. And one of the things he was really good at was restoring cars. And he would take this thing down to the bed. And he'd get on YouTube and and he'd put it together. And, you know, just watching him, it was fun to see the truck come along and it would be go out and ride it and they'd have certain things in and not but you know each time they, they'd add something in, and there was just a joy in seeing and experiencing the act of restoration something that was nothing becomes a antique of beauty do you understand that's a picture of what heaven is going to be like this act of restoration by God, something that was a wreck becomes an act of beauty. That's our reward for remaining faithful when the world tells us to bow our knee, to renounce God, to give in to the intimidation or deception. Would we celebrate this Jesus who makes this reward possible? Our Father in heaven, we're grateful that you are um, a rewarder of those who remain faithful. Thanks for your promise to restore our world, our broken world, a, a world that we marred, that we sinned, and yet you say you're not done. Um, Lord, that we would not fall for those things who look eternal but are not, but would follow you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.